All right, we're continuing on uh, in our pursuit of what the image is and whether all men are the image of God according to what we've been taught in the, frankly, uh, tradition in the past couple hundred years uh, from our Enlightenment cult that wants to bring in the fatherhood of God idea through the image and thus create a Christless anthropology. And it wants to create this Christless anthropology because it uh, needs a Christless anthropology in order to get to its inclusivism and its egalitarianism. It needs one humanity, not two. The Bible talks about the two as we talked about last week, but in fact, uh, you need one humanity if you're gonna actually say that we're all unified together as one whole and we all have a special relationship with God as a people uh, just by virtue of our creation as the image of God uh, rather than our connection to God only being through Jesus Christ. And so we'll talk more about all of that. And uh, I know that, again, that's new probably for some people, but uh, we'll, we'll try to illuminate a little bit as we go through. Uh, this week, I wanted to discuss chapter 9 uh, of Genesis because this is the ambiguous passage. And by ambiguous, I don't mean that it's ambiguous in terms of uh, uh, if you look at the context, you don't know what it's saying. If you look at the context, you do know what it's saying. What I mean by ambiguous is that if you rip it from its context and you just look at the sentence that is stated, then it, it becomes ambiguous. You're not sure you know, how you should take it. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at all that in a moment, but let's begin now in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. It guides us in places where we are dogmatic from our tradition, but not necessarily from your word. It helps us understand that we are being deceived and might be uh, pulled away from the truth for a particular reason to support a religion that is not yours. And so I thank you, Lord, for the word. I ask now that you open the eyes of those who may have been deceived on this issue, that they may truly understand why this is important and why it is not simply a matter of uh, we can just you know, believe otherwise uh, because uh, we're just all Christians anyway. Obviously, Lord, we're all Christians, but we could be preaching a different religion. And so we want to preach what you have said in your word and not something else. Uh, we want to understand the humanities that you've created, the humanities that now exist, uh, so that we can understand what our job is, what we should do, what our mis mission is, and what we should be preaching. Help us be consistent in our message that Christ is the only way to be connected to you. Christ is the only means through which we can be your sons and have the image uh, restored to us. Oh Lord, we seek this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter nine. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. Every land animal and every bird of the sky will be terrified of you. Everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea are under your authority. You are to eat any moving thing that lives. As I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat with its life, that is, its blood, in it. And I will surely exact punishment for your blood, your life. 
From every living creature I will exact punishment. From the hand of mankind, from each man his brother, I will exact punishment for the life of the man. Whoever sheds the blood of the man, by man his blood is to be shed. For as God's image, God has made man. So you are to be fruitful and multiply, increase abundantly on the earth and multiply upon it. Now, if you notice, there's an inclusio here between the, the creation mandate, be, be fruitful and multiply, fill up the earth, and then in, in the end, be fruitful, multiply, fill up the earth. So we are talking about, again, the role of the image. What is the image to be doing? Connect this back to Genesis 1. Uh, remember, God gives them all the vegetation to eat. Uh, he tells them the rule over the world by uh, being fruitful and multiplying and filling it up. Well, here he does the same thing, but he expands it, of course, to meat. And he tells them again to be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. So what's going on here? This is an expansion of the role of the image in a fallen world. So in a fallen world, he has to expand his food sources. He's got to go from vegetation to now include anything, all the animals. Notice it's all the animals, not clean and unclean, anything that moves. Uh, because the idea is just survival at this point. And so all of this is given to him, but he's not to eat it in its blood uh, because that's the life of the animal. And so uh, that it, it would be anti-creational to do that as the image, likely because there's defilements in the blood and, and things like that. But also maybe it, there may be occultic connotations to it, but it, it probably has to do more with the, the impurity of the blood in it. But the, um, uh, it, or in the blood, the... Um, the point, though, is that this is the role of the image. This is very important. So we, we read down uh, in verse 6, uh, the one who pours out the blood of the man, by the man his blood must be poured out. And then we get the why. Because as an image, God made the man. Now, that's the phrase that most people take to mean um, because God made the man as his image, you're not, they have value, all men have value and all men are the image of God. Uh, I'm going to argue that's not what it's saying. That's a misunderstanding of what it's saying and it's taking it out of context to interpret it that way. Now, the reason why I say it's ambiguous is if, if I just read that part to you, you could say, oh, well, you know, you could go either way. And you can, you can read it that way. You can read it to be like general humanity. But I would argue that what's better understood to be the image here is the one doing all of the things. So the one who is fruitful and multiplies, the one who is now to not just eat vegetation, but also meat to preserve life, the one who is not to eat meat with blood, and the one then who is to kill murderers, is the job, the role of the image. So that the image is the one doing all these things, not the one upon whom they are done. He is the subject, not the object. This is very important to understand. So the immediate context, I'm gonna argue there are four contexts to understanding who this is talking about as the image. And I'm gonna argue that all four contexts bend toward seeing the image as the executioners of murderers, not all humanity in general. 
Now, whether the guy who's murdered is an image, that's a possibility. Maybe he is, maybe it isn't. I don't think the text is commenting upon that. It's certainly not saying the murderer is an image. And I want you to know the logical conundrum that's created when people conclude that it's everybody's the image in this passage. Because if you conclude that and you say, well, inherently, this is why we don't kill people. This is why killing people is wrong. Because inherently, they are the image of God. God in creation placed on them the title of the image, and therefore you are not to kill them. It's wrong inherently to kill them because they're God's image. Not because God says, yes, you can kill them, or no, you can't, but because it's inherently within the man that he is the image of God and therefore has value as the image and represents God, you're not to kill him. It makes no sense to turn around and say, kill the guy then who kills another man, if he in fact is the image as well. If he's the image of God, the killer is, then you shouldn't kill him because he's the image of God. If that's the reasoning that you don't kill people because they're the image of God, then why does God turn around and say, yeah, kill him? You understand that that's, that's completely contradictory. And if you don't understand it's contradictory, I don't think you're thinking about it. Again, if it, there's inherent worth in the human that, that is the image of God and therefore the human ontologically is the image of God, not because God says so anymore, but because he originally said so and made it so and it can't be revoked, then God himself would be wrong for killing his own image. Remember, what you do to the image, you're doing to the God. So is God really saying, yeah, like, kill me through my image. Like, you know, uh, enact a murder upon me uh, through my image. Execute me. Of course not. The killer does not represent God. He represents the devil, as we talked about last week. He's not creational. He's anti-creational. He's done something the serpent would do. He's gone against God in creation. He's reduced humanity rather than filled up the earth and, and been fruitful and multiplied. So, very important to understand, there's a contradiction there that's created, and it's unnecessary because ultimately the context would indicate, the immediate context would indicate that it's the image that's doing these things. It's not the image that's murdered, and it's certainly not the image who kills people. And I want you to notice then that the, the, the description, the, the, the cause uh, of why Man is to, uh, or, or the, the, the statement that man is uh, God's image, or he's made as uh, God's image, follows the fact that by man, uh, his blood is to be acquired. In other words, he's to exact punishment. So in verse 6, uh, the one who pours out the blood of the man, by man, his blood must be poured out. Because, as an image, God made the man. In other words, it's saying why the man, as God's image, has to execute murderers. That's the whole point. And so the, uh, the understanding then is that the reason why you, as the image of God, speaking to Noah and his sons are to execute murderers is because that's the role of the image. If you have someone running around murdering people, 
That's not going to preserve human life. And notice all the things in this text are about creating and preserving human life. That's the role of the image. It's not a benign statement that generically man is ontologically the image. It's telling the image what you do as the image to preserve covenant human life. You take out murderers. If they run around and reduce creation, that's contrary to creation. So take them out. That's the idea. Which, by the way, shows you, just as a caveat here, shows you that life and being creational sometimes includes death and killing. This idea that, well, if I'm pro-life, I'll be pro-life even to the point of the death penalty. And it's like, well, yeah, you will be pro-life and therefore pro-death penalty. That's what this passage is arguing. You're going to actually be for the creation of children and for the destruction and taking out of murderers. That's all pro-life. That's all creational. That's the point God's making here. Because you're reducing agents of chaos in the world. And you're producing agents of creation and life. So that's the first context, the immediate context. But I want to also argue that it's not just the immediate context that tells us this. But it's the literary context of the book. So I would, I would ask you if you hadn't watched the message from last week that you would go through last week and understand that the argument so far in the book has been that the image is a functional idea. It's a role that man takes on and therefore every man is not the image. Well, since that's been the argument that's been created uh, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 5 in the presentation of the image then we wouldn't come here and say, well, yeah, every man's the image. So it goes against the context of Genesis. And of course, after this, God will present two humanities as well, one in covenant with him and one that is not. Uh, One that goes off into anti-creational activity. And so you have things like Sodom and Gomorrah and Onan and uh, the rape of Dinah and all these things that are are, uh, anti-creational. The, uh, the um, you know, the group that wants to marry, you know, once she's raped, all that, but they're unbelievers, they're not in covenant. Uh, all of these, all these anti-creational things that are done in the rest of the book. There's two humanities then that are presented, not one. And one is called the image and the other is not. So that's the, the literary narrative uh, theological context is also geared to tell us that this is talking about the image as the executioners of murderers, not all humanity. So the immediate context, the larger literary context of the book, but then I would argue the canonical context, which we'll look at later, uh, in fact shows that all man is not the image there either, and that it's only believers who are the image of God, ultimately because they're in Jesus Christ, who alone is the image of the invisible God. And so the larger canonical context tells us that. that. The fourth context, of course, is the cultural context. And I alluded to it earlier. But the cultural context is that an image represents the deity in terms of its function of withholding chaos from the area. In other words, it produces life in the area. It holds chaos at bay. It doesn't do chaos itself, and it certainly wouldn't be destroyed representing the God. It would only be destroyed if it no longer represented the God. 
And so the cultural context of understanding that only the image is something through which the God gives life to the community and keeps chaos at bay, then the image would not be something that brings chaos into the community. It therefore would not be the murderer. And so it's not everyone. It's not that everyone's the image. But it's specifically the image that actually through which God does, uh, produces life into the world. Because of that, those four contexts all indicate that this is not talking about all of humanity being the image of God. Um, we need to conclude that the reason why people take it that way is because they have read the verse isolated from those four contexts in which it resides and gotten the impression that it's just general humanity and that's why we don't kill people. Um, and because of that tradition, it's so, so rooted down deep, it just sounds that way. It just sounds like that's the way we should take it. And the other way doesn't sound right because it sounds new and I, I haven't heard that before and I don't really like it as much uh, because I, I like, I like the, the general humanity one better. That's not how we do exegesis. You don't do exegesis because, well, this just feels right and that doesn't, doesn't feel as right. Yeah, well, it's not going to feel as right because you heard one your whole life. You believe it strongly. You may have your entire ministry uh, uh, being supported by the idea, and you don't want to believe otherwise. But that isn't exegesis. So the reason why this ran through, the only four contexts that this actually has is to show you that all those contexts gear you toward understanding that not everyone's the image. So why would you keep interpreting it that way? Other than it's just your tradition and you like it better. Uh, we're not doing exegesis through our spidey senses. We're not getting exegesis through my, my feelings and what I like better and what I don't. That's eisegesis. You're pouring your own desires and your own ideas into the text, but you're not drawing from the context what this passage might mean. And I want you to note that the reason why people pull it from its context is because it is ambiguous once you take it out of context. And you can then say, well, you can go either way then. You can conclude that the executioners are the image, or you can say everybody is. And I would agree, yes, once you take it out of context, you can make it ambiguous and it can be anything. But that's not how we should read the Bible. So beside the contradiction uh, that I mentioned before, the traditional reading ignores all four of those contexts. <clears throat> now, what I want to do is I want to show you, because I mentioned the canonical context, but I didn't prove it to you, right? I just said the canonical, it goes against the canonical context. So what I want to do now is I, I want to go to... Uh, some of the New Testament, because that's where we find the idea of the image again. The image is not mentioned again in the Old Testament, although we can understand that Israel is supposed to be the image of God. Uh, they fail in that many times. Of course, they're kicked out of the land, which represents the, the garden sanctuary, the temple that God resides in this, this area and, uh, and withholds chaos and removes chaos and corruption, which are the Canaanites from the land. And so Israel was to be that image, and of course they fail in doing so. Ultimately, God is going to promise a messianic king who is going to accomplish that role. 
And the Messianic King, of course, is Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so uh, I want, what I want you to notice with this is that the word glory, that the idea of God's glory, the image is sometimes referred to as God's glory. Remember that God's glory, and we've talked about this in Ezekiel quite a bit, that God's glory is the presence of God, the beauty of God, through which God creates life. That's why the image is described that way. So if Jesus is God's glory, it is actually saying that Jesus is God's image. And, um, and so I wanted to point that out. And therefore, the exact representation, the, the, uh, I think it actually even uses the word acone there. I'd have to look at the Greek. I don't remember. Um, but uh, the, the image of, of, of him and his glory and whatnot. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it's going to talk about the devil a little bit in the preaching of the gospel. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. So the gospel itself is now the glory of Christ. It's the means through which he gives life to the world. So it becomes kind of an image in that way, in that he gives life. But he himself, of course, is the glory of God displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, it's important. Now, when you look at the Greek, you may say, well, there's no definite article there. That's a misunderstanding. That You wouldn't say Christ is an image of God uh, among many. I mean, then, then what's the point of calling him the image if we're all the images? I mean, and what does it matter? Um, he is the image of God. I, I think there's a Semitism that goes on. You can also do this in Greek. But whenever you have a, an absolute noun, for instance, in Hebrew, and something is in construct, you wouldn't have the article on the construct. In fact, you, you, it can't have an article. You know it's definite by the following absolute noun. The, the absolute noun is definite. And I think many times in Greek, because these writers are Jewish, and because you can do this in Greek, um, that uh, the genitives are meant to display that uh, to, to a definite noun, the same idea. So if you don't need the article on image because God is definite. And so it's the image of God. Um, and we'll see this again in, uh, in the next passage, which if we turn to is Colossians 1.15. And this is made far more explicit because Colossians 1.15 is going to talk about Christ as ruling as the, in the role of the image that we see in Genesis. And so, actually, let's just go to, to Colossians 1. And uh, let's see, we'll start in... In verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That's where we were. Not, in, not under the kingdom of God, not in the dominion of God, in the dominion of darkness 
and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, the son is the image of the invisible God. Now notice there's no article there either, but I want you to notice that there's only going to be one. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, well, that's also got no article, firstborn, uh, uh, prototakos or whatever. or Yeah, I forget the actual term, but it's the firstborn over all creation. How many creations are there? Well, one. Well, how many firstborns of one creation is there? Well, one. And firstborn has the idea of sovereignty. It's not literally the firstborn. That's a misunderstanding. We can see that idea. That's the idea of sovereignty. Verse 16, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Well, weren't all things created for the man, the image of God originally? Well, this is the idea. He is the image. So the son is the image of the invisible God. So if the son is the image of the invisible God and not an image, that means only the son now is the image of God. No one else is. Everyone else has fallen from that role. Now we understand that once we're put in the son, we're made new in him and we are given the, uh, given the, the status of the son as God's image. And as God's son now, and that's why we are adopted as sons. We have to be adopted as sons. We're not naturally sons. And that's very important because a lot of people don't understand that the idea of the son, as we talked about last week, is linked to the idea of the image. And so if you are God's son, you're God's image. If you're not God's son, you're not God's image. So Colossians 3.10, same book. So after it's calling Jesus, the, the, uh, the image of God, and calling him the son, of course, because he's the son, and having those ideas linked. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. And so this is once we become Christians, he's telling us uh, in uh, verse 9, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So notice this, your old self you've thrown off, by becoming a Christian, and now you've put on a new self that you didn't have before. And what is this new self? Well, let's, let's see, verse, nine, or verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So it, it, it is the image. The new self is the image. And it's being created according to that image. And who, who's its creator? Well, it's God through Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. So Christ then becomes the one who is God's image. And only in Christ can man now fulfill his role of the image and become the image again. He is restored to that role that he lost. Very important. Uh, the parallel passage, because in one of the passages, you might, you might go over and say, well, it doesn't have the word image in it, or, but it does have the word image or likeness in it uh, in one of the passages. And the other passage is Ephesians 4.24. In Ephesians 
you have essentially the same thing it said in Colossians with variation in how it says it in the Greek. And so we'll start in verse 23. Sorry, I should have these written out and be faster here. So uh, verse 23, um, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, talking about, well, sorry, let's, let's do verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So the old self is still being corrupted. To be made new in the disposition of your minds and to put on the new self. You have to put it on again, created to be in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, to be like God in the sense of the likeness. In other words, that's the parallel, the image, to be in the image of God. And how is what is that image? It's, it exists in true righteousness and holiness, functioning in that role of doing what is right and creational. That's what the image is. And that's why only Jesus is that image and only those who are in Jesus can become that image because Jesus himself is the representative of God uh, to the rest of creation. Uh, Romans 8.29, many of us are familiar with this passage, of course, and... uh, Romans 8 is when, you know, we're, we're looking to be restored and uh, we, we're being sanctified and all of that. And it, sh- it, it starts from the beginning of God predestining us and it tells us why God predestined us from the, from before the foundation of the world. In verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn, there's that language again, among many brethren. And so we understand then that we are predestined to be conformed to Christ because Christ is the image of God. Adam was offered that role. Adam rejected it. All of his children then are no longer in that role. They are not in the role of the image of God. They have become sons of the devil and are therefore the images of the devil and, uh, and therefore not the images of God. And the only way to become an image of God then is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to show you is that this is not some new novel idea. Um, This is an idea that actually the entire church has believed for 2,000 years. The difference is, however, when you get to the earlier church among the fathers, is that the fathers wanted to bring in the Greek idea of what makes up a man ontologically. And they understood that the image was a role, though. They understood the image had to do with righteousness and being creational and all of that and being in God having uh, you know, the, the perfect will aligned with God in perfection and all of that. And that's what man was meant to be originally as the image. They understood that. Um, but they wanted to include the idea of the ontological, the ontological idea that the Greeks had, man is made up of this and that, and he's got like a will, and he's got um, you know, just a will in general, not a perfect will in line with God, but just a will. 
and he's got, uh, you know, a spirit and all of those sorts of things. He's got a mind, he's got emotion. They wanted to connect that. And so what they said was, is that, well, the image, the, the, the word image in Genesis 1 refers to that because both man, male and female can be the image. So it refers to that. Um, the word likeness, they separated the two and said, well, the word likeness, that refers to all the, you know, the role of the image. And that's what man lost. Man lost the likeness of God, but he's still the image. Well, we understand now that in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language, image and likeness are interchangeable. They're, they're parallel to one another. They're not two different things. Uh, if you're talking about a likeness in a temple or an image in a temple, it's the same thing. It's not two different things. And we can see this in Genesis itself. In Genesis 5, the reason why you can switch pronouns, or sorry, prepositions on the words is because you can switch them back and forth. The reason why he doesn't need to repeat it uh, when he talks about he made them, uh, he made man his image, male and female, he made them. He doesn't need to repeat the word likeness is because likeness is an image. It's not two different things. And the reformers understood this. Uh, they still wanted to, to have the, the ontological idea, but in reality, they had no verses for it. The only verses they really had for it are things like Genesis 9. Uh, and we'll look, we'll look in a minute to, to say that also in James or whatnot, but James clearly is talking about believers, not unbelievers. And so uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to read you some of the Reformed confessions in order to show you that they themselves conclude what we've been talking about and, uh, and they've not actually held on to what was, is more popular. Now, some of the Reformers did, but other Reformers did not. And so uh, people like Martin Luther, for instance, concluded that man is actually the devil's image, uh, not God's image anymore, uh, even though, you know, Luther kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to find because he contradicts himself here and there and whatnot. So he may, he may retain some of the older idea. He may not. Uh, but his words are pretty harsh in saying that man has lost the image and, in fact, is the image of the devil. Uh, this is the large Emden uh, Catechism from 1551. Question 81. How should I understand this? Indisputably, is the response, the image and likeness of God in which man was created in the beginning, along with all inclinations for good, was lost in him. Question 82. How should I understand this? Response. This image of God was in Adam in the beginning, by virtue of which he was immortal, holy, wise, and the Lord of the entire world, and thus was endowed with the freedom and ability to either completely execute or disregard the commandment of God. However, the image of God in himself and in all of us, he so destroyed by his sin that henceforth all offerings intended for goodness were utterly destroyed both in himself and in all of us. This is from the Scottish Confession uh, in 1560, 1560 uh, by which transgression commonly called original sin was the image of God utterly defaced in man. Now I want you to notice this word defaced. What happens when you deface an idol? You, you destroy it. It no longer functions the way that it should. So a lot of people will take defaced and even reformers later on, will talk about being at marred or defaced and they'll misunderstand what's being said in these confessions 
as well man's just partially partially defaced and so but he still retains the image in some way uh that's not what they're arguing i want you to pay attention to what they're actually saying so uh the image of god was utterly completely defaced in man and he and his posterity of nature became enemies of god slaves to satan and servants to sin this is uh, the confession of the Spanish Congregation of London, 1560-61. We confess that man at his creation, having received from the hand of God the powers of wisdom and the ability and will to know, love, and serve his creator. Notice how that's what the image is described as. Persisting in his obedience, which is commonly called free will, received also a law in Genesis 2, in the obedience of which he exercised these admirable gifts, which breaking by his own free will, Genesis 3, at the same time was marred from the image of God. So he was marred. There's the word marred. You might think, oh, well, he's just partially corrupted then, but not completely. Uh, It it is partially the image removed. But I want you to notice this. Marred from the image of God and all the benefits that make him like God and from the state of being wise, good, good, just, truthful, merciful, and holy, he was rendered ignorant, evil, impious, a liar, and cruel, clothed in the image and likeness of the devil toward whom he moved as he departed from God with the loss of that holy liberty with which he was created, and thus was made a slave and a servant of sin and of the devil." So the marring does not refer to a partial loss. He lost all of that, the ability to know, love, and serve his creator and to be in obedience, which is what is described as the image. Here's the Belgic Confession in 1561. We believe that God created man out of the dust of the earth and made and formed him after his own image and likeness, good, righteous, and holy, capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. But being in honor, he understood it not, neither knew his excellency, but willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse, giving ear to the words of the devil. For the commandment of life, which he had received, he transgressed and by sin separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his whole nature whereby he made himself liable to corporal and spiritual death. And being thus become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways, he hath lost all his excellent gifts. He has lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God and only retained a few remains thereof, which, however, are sufficient to leave man without excuse. So he's not talking about that he has holiness and righteousness in the image of God, but only certain gifts that actually make him accountable for his sin. For all the light which is in us is changed into darkness, all of it. As the scripture teaches us saying, the light shineth in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it, where St. John calls men darkness. Now, um, this is the documents of the, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, Debrecen Synod in 1567. First, since the image of God was lost by Adam, it was restored through the image of the infinite God, consubstantial and equal with the Father. That is, Christ was made, uh, was, uh, made to us righteousness, life, truth, and sanctification. Notice that's what the image is there. And man lost it. That is, he restored our lost virtues 
Day by day, we are renewed more and more to his image through the spirit of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Put on the new man who has been created in accordance with God, Ephesians 4.24. Therefore, Christ, by the power of his deity, has restored the image of God, the lost virtues. This is Craig's catechism in 1581. Question, in whose image made he them? Answer, in his own image. Question, what is the image of God? Answer, perfect uprightness in body and soul. Question, what was the craft of Satan here? Answer, he persuaded them that good was evil and evil was good. Question, how could they be persuaded having the image of God? Answer, they had the image of they had the image but not the gift of constancy. Question, what things did they lose through their fall? Answer, the favor and image of God with the use of the creatures. Question, what succeeded the loss and of the favor and the image of God? Answer, the wrath of God and original sin. Question, what is original sin? Answer, the corruption of our whole nature. Question, in what did their salvation stand? Answer, in the remission of their sin and repairing of God's image. So repairing is not meaning it's still there and it's just like, you know, filling in the cracks. It means restoring it because it was lost. Question, what followed upon the repairing of God's image? Answer, a continual battle both within and without. Question, from whence does this battle proceed? Answer, from the two contrary images in mankind. Question, what are these images? Answer, the image of God and the image of the serpent. Talking about Christians now who have both flesh and spirit. In their flesh, they're just the image of the devil. But now having come into Christ, they are also the image of God and they are learning to live in the new man who is being created in accordance with that, that nature. Now, I want you to notice, you might say, well, that's just a bunch of, you know, and the Belgics ambiguous and the others I've never heard of, blah, blah, blah. Well, you have heard of this one. It's part of the three forms of unity, the canons of Dort. I want you to pay attention to this. This is important because a lot of people completely miss it and ignore it. Man was originally formed after the image of God, originally formed after the image of God, originally. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things, his heart and will were upright. This is what the image is. All of his affections pure. The whole man was holy. This is what the image is. But revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts. What excellent gifts? The image of God that he just described, that they just described. He forfeited these excellent gifts and on the contrary entailed on himself blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity and perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious and obdurate in heart and will and impure in his affections. In other words, everything he just described as the image he no longer has. He has the opposite of that, which is consistent with the image of the devil that all these other confessions are talking about. So if you hold to the three forms of unity and you're holding that every man is the image of God, you are holding something contrary to your confession. And of course, even greater than that, you're holding something that isn't biblical. You have no verses that talk about the ontological nature of man as God's image. 
Now, the other couple places in the New Testament are often cited to say that man is uh, God's image, right? So James 3, 9, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse man who have been made in God's likeness. Oh, well, there you go. I guess, I guess it's just generic humanity then. Um, what is James rebuking the church for? Cursing and uh, disputing and lying about one another, bearing false witness of the world? Or are they arguing with one another in the church? Are the disputes in the church? Are, there, are they separating classes in the church and they're speaking poorly of one another in the church and they're suing one another in the church? Read the context. It's talking about believers slandering other believers and other believers are made as the image of God. They are, they are restored to that in Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians says, look, we, we have been created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? For the purpose of doing good works, good works, creational works, the job of the image. You are created in Christ Jesus. Why you need to be regenerated. You need to be born again because you are, are already corrupted and you're no longer God's image. But believers are God's image now. They have been created in Christ Jesus to be that image, the new man that's being created in, in that pattern of the image. Finally, I want to kind of put this all to bed by going to 1 Corinthians 11 and show you there's a major problem, a major problem uh, from 1 Corinthians 11 if, in fact, we say that... Uh, that all that, that the image is ontological and that the Bible somehow teaches the idea that it's ontological. Now, I want, I want to read this to you. This is about the head coverings, which I think is, you know, hair length uh, in, in reality. But I, I want to, to read to you what Paul says here in his, his defense of why men should have short hair, why women should have long hair, why there should be a distinction in genders in the way that you look in terms of your hair. Uh, Verse 7, he says, A man ought not to cover his head, that is, have something hanging down from his head in the Greek, since he is the image and glory of God. Notice, image and glory of God. They're parallel there. But woman is the glory of man. Uh-oh. Why isn't the image and glory of God the woman? I mean, his argument it is arguing that the reason why man needs to have this symbol of authority uh, in having the short hair and, and distinguishing himself as male and males have authority over the woman and therefore she needs to look like a woman and he needs to look like a man and they need to separate and understand the distinctions of authority because those roles have not been wiped out in the over, you know, over-realized eschatology of the Corinthians. They think that they maybe they have been wiped out. They've not been wiped out. And so his argument, one of his arguments is, is that the man is the image and glory of God. Well, if the woman was also the image and glory of God, then it doesn't make any sense, then, because they're both that way. So what does that have to do with anything that he's arguing? But he's not arguing. He's going back to Genesis 1, and he's, he's, he's actually drawing from Genesis 1 the distinction that's made there. Because God says uh, there, let us make man as our image, man. 
And then uh, he says, and, and he, he made them, he made man as his image, male and female he made them. So first it says he made man as his image, then male and female. <clears throat> now we understand that man can be collective and it's being used that way. But what Paul seems to be wanting to argue here is that the man is primarily God's image and the woman participates in this. How does she participate? Well, from Genesis 1 and 2, the man cannot function as the image and be fruitful and multiply without the woman. That's why she's made to be his helper in chapter 2. It's not that she's made to be his helper in order to like mow the lawn or something. She's made to be his helper in order to fulfill the command, the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill up the earth. And so she's the glory of man. She's what allows him to do his job or he can't do it. He can't actually take upon the role of the image. Now, that's not to say that the man and the woman can't separately be the image of God in other creational activity. But originally in the original creation account, it's talking about sexuality and and producing children. And it's simply saying that God made the man to be the image, but then, oh no, something's not good. Something's not creational. He can't actually fulfill that role. He needs someone to help him, and therefore the woman is created. So man is primarily the image, and the woman joins him in the image by participating in the role for which God made him. But that means that the woman is not ontologically the image, and it probably means then, after all we've looked at, that the man is not ontologically the image either. Man is made to be an image to fulfill a role, and the woman is made to fulfill a role that helps him fulfill that role. So she's being creational and participating in the image through him. In ter- again, in terms of the original command of being fruitful and multiplying. Obviously, there are other ways to be creational, and we understand preaching the gospel is creational, and preserving life is creational. The woman's uh, job in the household is very creational. I mean, that's all the image as well. But she first and foremost partakes in the foundation of the image idea in the creation mandate, which has to do with having sex and having children. And so very important to understand, if you interpret the image as ontological, you have to say that Paul's arguing that women aren't actually the image. When in fact, I think if you understand that it's a role, you understand that what he's really saying is, is that the man was made to be in that role and the woman was made to join him as his helper in that role. And they function in the image that way so that man is the image and glory of God and the woman is the glory of the man. So the man is the crown upon God's head and the woman is the jewel in the crown that makes it shine, that tells everybody, yeah, this is the king's crown. And so she participates in that way. Now, again, if you're going to interpret it ontologically, you've got a problem. How are you going to explain this? Because if they're both inherently the image, then he's not making any argument. It doesn't make any sense. They're both the same thing. So why would one have to have this on his head and, and one have you know this on her head? It doesn't make any sense. So all of this to say that therefore the canonical context, when we go back to Genesis 9 is uh, to understand the image as solely as believers and not general humanity. And we can therefore not get the fatherhood of God idea that we're all somehow connected specially to God in some way uh, just, by, just by nature of our humanity. Just by virtue of being a human, somehow you have a sacred connection to God. No, you don't. You are without God in the world. You are dead 
in your sin. You are separated from the commonwealth of God's people. Uh, You have no connection to God whatsoever. You are not his sons. You are sons and daughters of the devil apart from Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is the image of God. Being connected to him, you are restored as the image. And sanctification is you learning how to fulfill that role in your life by being fruitful and multiplying and, and creating and preserving covenant human life. And that's why once you are justified and saved in every book, Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and all of these, there's a therefore, this is what your life should look like. Because now you're the image, now do what's creational. And that means fulfilling the law and all the intent of the law and even more so in doing what is right and just and gives life in the world. That's why you're to refrain from chaos and doing evil in the world and putting more chaos in the world. And you're to do good by taking care of the poor and sustaining the life of other Christians. Because remember, that's the important point. The job of the image is to create and reserve covenant human life through his actions. And so that is the job that we are to do as Christians. Not everyone is the image. We don't have a unity with all of humanity through that image. Our unity begins and ends with the fact that God just made everybody. He also made rocks. Uh, He also made dogs. He also made, uh, you know, trees. They're not the image of God just because God made them. Now, man is supposed to enter into that covenant with God, but he chooses not to. And so in choosing not to be in that role, he is no longer in covenant with God. He's separated from the covenant. Now, I, I want to say at the end of all this, well, then, if you've built this whole ethic on the fact that man's God's image, and that's why you don't kill him, you've misunderstood why you shouldn't kill people. You don't kill them because it's God's creation. They're possessions of God, not yours. And by killing them, you put yourself in the seat of God and are committing the original sin. You are actually placing yourself in the place of God. God has decided that he wants that rock there and that tree there and those animals there. And he's placed mankind over all of that, but not over the lives of one another. I want you to notice in chapter 9, he says, I'm not going to require the blood of the animals. I'm only going to require your blood, the blood of humans from, from the blood or from the hand of those who killed them. Well, why is that? Well, because all possession then is put underneath mankind, but men are not put underneath men in terms of killing them, except in terms of government. And that's what you have in Genesis 9 and elsewhere, that God says, okay, these men are my possessions. Uh, They have become killers. And therefore, I authorize you as government to execute them. This is why government has the sword. It has the power of execution. So it is murder has to do with authorized, uh, unauthorized uh, killing versus execution, with it, which is authorized killing or, or uh, participating in war as defense or war as, again, execution upon crimes. Uh, those things are authorized by God. Unauthorized killing is murder. That's why killing in an unauthorized way, is wrong. has nothing to do with what man is inherently. It has to do with what God has said you can do with what is his possession and what you cannot do with his possession. 
And by breaking that, you are ascending to the power of God, to the throne of God, and saying that you are God. That's why it's wicked and you shouldn't kill them. And beyond that, then, you, you understand that you would expand that to the rest of creation. You have the authority to chop down all the trees, but should you? Well, no, because that would be anti-creational. They're life-sustaining as a part of the ecosystem. Same thing as why you shouldn't go through the neighborhood and shoot all the dogs because they're not the image. You're not killing to kill. You want to be creational. Everything's part of the ecosystem. But you may go out and shoot a bunch of deer if the deer are overrunning the ecosystem. That might be creational. I mean, so that, that's the idea that ultimately killing human beings is wrong because it's unauthorized except when it is by God. We don't decide that. And it has nothing to do with some sort of inherent worth in the man. The man has become worthless. This is over and over again repeated in the Bible. Uh, they all together, Romans 3, have become worthless. There's none that are good, none that are creational anymore, none that are the image. They must, through faith in Jesus Christ, be restored to what God originally made us to be. And that's what the job of the Christian is, to become what God originally made us to be in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we love you, Lord, and we love the fact that you have guided us through your word. Help us understand it all the more. And not just understand the doctrine, but understand what it looks like in our daily lives so as to do it, so as to actually become creational. It's not enough to merely believe the truth. Let us live the truth out and become your images in the world, giving life to the covenant community, preserving the covenant community, and creating the covenant community by preaching the gospel, Lord. Let us not confuse it with a false social gospel and false uh, social ideas of justice in our culture. But rather, let us understand that creation takes place, covenant creation, through the preaching of Jesus Christ, him crucified and him resurrected. Father, let us call all men to repentance so they might be restored into what they originally were made to be, true worshipers of you through body and soul and all action. Father, we pray these things to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.